Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream you can Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough... Or even if they don't, dictate it is almost always the case during my uh, 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Thursday, May 28th. 2009. This is episode, I think, 208 of the Survival Podcast, and as I've been doing, I'm going to continue on with uh, listener questions that are coming to me by email. This is turning into a great series, and I'll tell you what, I got so many questions yesterday, I could do three more shows just with the questions, or at least two more shows, I would say, with the questions that are sitting in my inbox right now, and some of them are really great questions. One or two of them actually are like, okay, I'm not going to do that as a question, I'm going to do a whole show on that. So great job, guys. But keep them coming because even when I take, I'm going to do this tomorrow as well. And then next week I'm going to take a break from this format for one or two shows. And I might go right back to it because I think this is a great, good variety. And I know I'm giving you what you want because you're the ones asking the questions. And until I get to a point where I can have live callers or something like that, this is the best we can do on a regular basis. Now, before I go into today's questions, uh, let's do our house cleaning. Number one, uh, I don't do this enough and I probably should do it more. Please consider getting involved with our forum. We have one of the best forums available on survivalism and homesteading and permaculture and agriculture and everything you can think of that revolves around self-sufficiency on the Internet today. We are not the biggest forum out there, but we're growing rapidly. But what I'll tell you is we have the highest caliber members uh, that you could possibly want to have. We have an amazing team of moderators. I'd really like to see more people on the forum. Please also understand, though, our forum is a community. And as a community, we have rules of our community, and they are enforced, and they are not negotiable. So if a moderator gets in touch with you about a forum thread and says, hey, look, um, you're taking this thread off course, you know, please stop doing this. Pay attention, because if you keep doing it, you'll end up banned. And there's no freedom of speech on our forum. There's there's a right to speak freely, but freedom of speech means you can say anything you want, anywhere you want, any way you want, and that is not going to happen there. We have certain rules and guidelines. So that's just kind of a public service notice there. Uh, next, make sure you check out our advertisers. They're great guys. They're helping to support the show. Vetted by our uh, moderator squad. If uh, two moderators say no, and we haven't had a single no to any of them yet, folks. Uh, they don't get on there. Check out SOE Tactical Gear. John Willis is on. Operation. Great guys. That's our advertiser of the day. Uh, next, if uh, you think you get a quarter's uh, value out of every episode, if each episode's worth a quarter to you, consider joining the Survival Podcast Supporting Members Brigade, and you'll get exclusive content available only to members, including video content in every episode of the Survival Podcast ever recorded back to the crappy audio ones, episode one, um, in nice, great zip files ready for immediate download all ready to go, uh, sequential numbering and everything on them, okay? All right, uh, let's leave the house cleaning there for right now, and uh, let's go on with the next uh, topic, or the next, uh, the, the, the uh, questions, I'm sorry, I'm dodging trucks here, uh, but let's go on with the first question. 
And this was an interesting question, something I really never thought about before. I don't know how much it would impact what I'm going to do with my life, but it did make me go, hmm, interesting to think that way. And basically, the short version of this question is, you know, we talk about buying rural property, remote property, things like that for a bug out location, and how that property has traditionally increased in value over the years. And the land in general has increased in value over the years. And for that matter, commodities have increased in value over the years. The, uh, the question, though, is, well, if we had, let's say, the flu pandemic came back, and it could be any disease, really, but the flu pandemic came back, and it was lethal this time. You know, it was like 1918 lethal. Two and a half percent of the people that get it die, including young, healthy, strong people. And we wiped out a million people in the United States. Would that then suppress property values, suppress the price of gold? If, you know, globally we lost millions and millions of people, would the prices and the values of things fall? Um, through deflation temporarily due to recession and depression created by it? Probably, but I think long term or even relatively short term, you'd have the exact opposite effect. I mean, first of all, you have to understand that the supply-demand side of things, if we had a real hardcore illness hit, that was communicable, transmitted human to human, uh, I think people would then start to value remote property more. So the remote property thing by itself, in this case, maybe even gold would come down, though, and possibly at some point, but gold does that all the time anyway for a variety of reasons. But the reality is when you talk about not gold, but the cost of goods in this country, you have to understand why prices go up. It has absolutely nothing to do over the long trend with supply and demand. Supply and demand have acute responses in pricing. In other words, if I create a shortage of ammunition, people run around and buy boxes of 45 ACP for 50 bucks when they could have got them for 15 bucks just a few months ago because it's an acute shortage. Right? That's a supply and demand thing. But long term, the price of 45 ACP ammunition has been in a continual upward you know, climb since it was first made available after John Browning's invention of the beautiful 1911 uh, handgun frame uh, that was designed for that route. It's just, that's, that's you know, a, a constant upward pressure on the price. There's been dips up, acute ups and downs, but it had a constant up, and that's with just about everything in society. Well, the whole reason that happens, that, that inflation happens, is because the money is not valued on anything. There's no gold standard anymore. That's actually what causes it, and what causes it is more money. We keep printing more and more money. The total number of dollars in circulation goes up. So if we had people die off, some large chunk of society die off, and I'm talking a few million. I'm not talking, you know, okay, if, if we had 300 million people in this country and 200 million of them died tomorrow, we're in a totally different place in a totally different world. But, you know, we're talking a more plausible scenario of a death rate of a million people in this country. I don't think it will really have much of a long-term effect on prices at all because it's that very inflation of the number of dollars that's already been done. It's already in place. So I, I don't know that I'd even worry about it. But it's interesting to think about. It's a good question. Um, next question was a little bit different. Guy said he planted some potatoes in his garden. They're going crazy now. And now he understands why people plant them in uh, tires 
cars or boxes or whatever, and he's wondering, well, how do I get them out of there without damaging them? First of all, let me encourage you to do a couple things with your potatoes uh, since they're already in the ground. Start hilling dirt up around them. I mean, bury them up till only maybe a couple inches of the plant is sticking up out of the ground, uh, depending on how much hilling you can do. But but keep hilling them up until you know you're not comfortable hilling them any higher. That'll increase your yield. You can do that with compost. You can do that with soil from around. I mean, wherever you can get good quality soil to put around them, you can do that. You can even hill them up with straw. Uh, they'll grow inside a straw bale as well. Don't try to harvest them until the plants die. Let the tops of the plants turn brown and die back. That's when you're going to dig them up. And then just simply, you know where you planted them, so start your digging. Usually with a garden fork is a good way to do it. Gently and easily. Um, not trying to shove it down in the ground as hard as you can. On the outskirts and work your way in and just work them out of the ground. It's been done that way for a thousand years. You know, the uh, the uh, the Indians down in uh, uh, South America, they, they were growing the original potatoes, first people to cultivate them. They didn't have tires, they didn't have boxes, they grew them in the ground just like you did. Nothing really to worry about there. Might you damage one or two of them? Sure. Uh, but if you're not stepping on your soil, you're letting it stay loose and friable, you're not going to have much of a problem. Just those are two things to do. Make sure, one, let it die back to the ground. Let it die. Let the, 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 the vines turn brown before you harvest because that way you'll know the tubers have been set. And try hilling them up to increase your yield. Now the other thing this person said is he got them off. There were some ones sitting on the shelf that had started to uh, to bud. I hope you get a good yield. I, I can't promise you that you will because potatoes that we buy in stores are treated with a chemical to prevent them from uh, sprouting. Now, once they sprout, you would say, well, that chemical's worn off. It can still have an effect, and it can, sometimes you get great, big, beautiful plants and no yield at all. And then I've talked to other people say, hey, man, I went down to the store. I bought a bag of brown russets. Four of them sprouted. I put them in the ground. I got 20, 30 pounds of potatoes out of four or five potatoes. So, I mean, all you can do is uh, give it a shot and let us know your results. But, again, don't, don't worry too much about getting them out of the ground and just wait until they're done before you harvest them. Okay, um, another great question. Uh, this one's about my personal bug allocation. I guess it would refer to anybody's bug allocation. And uh, this person asked, okay, if um, you got your bug allocation all set up and all, especially once you're there and you're there permanently or even, I guess, before you would go, do you plan on having security beyond a couple you know, German Shepherds running around, which we have from the neighbor's dogs, and plan on having a couple of our own when we move there, or are the dogs enough security? Um, the reality is the dogs are not enough security. They certainly are a measure of security. One of the really great things about my location, and some of the people up there actually wish they would pave the road that leads up to our gate, I don't want them to. I mean, it's, it's hard on a small vehicle, but we have tough, strong vehicles we take good care of. The Jetta will probably get used very little once we're there. We're talking about buying a, uh, a second truck, a diesel, or maybe even a Jeep uh, when we move there. So the road's rough and gravel and rock. And what that means is I can hear a vehicle coming from, oh, I'd say half a mile down the road. And the gravel part of the road's probably about a mile long. Dogs can hear it. As soon as a vehicle touches it. And the dogs that live in that area, the second a vehicle's on that road, their ears are up. And they're checking things out. And, and you know as soon as they know because you observe them. And uh, they are quite protective of the property. So that's, that is a, a good step in the right direction. 
Now, I'd say that's not enough. And motion detectors was really asked about. Motion detecting lights, absolutely. Somebody moves around outside, the lights come on. Now, you have to be a little bit careful with how sensitive you make those in a remote rural location because deer will set them off. You have deer going by your house every night, and you have a paranoid bug-out location guy running outside with his 357 or his 45 every time a freaking deer or a raccoon run by, runs by the outside of the house. So understanding that really the way to run motion detectors is run them in two perimeters. And you can run solar-powered uh, lighting with motion detectors on your outskirts of your perimeter uh, of you know the main ways that people would get into your property. And then conventional stuff maybe on the eaves of your house close up. So that will give you kind of, uh, if, if one goes off, okay, it's not that big a deal. And a lot of times it will scare an intruder away uh, if we're not in like a total shit at the fan where you're looking at invading type people or something like that. Um, but if like two or three go off, then you know you really need to check things out. So I'd say with the motion detectors for lighting, don't wire all your lighting. Don't have a one motion detector light the whole world up. Uh, or even if you get to the point where you realize, okay, that's a deer, it's going to be annoying all night long while your lights are going on and off. So uh, kind of stage that out. And even your like your two perimeters, have them individual. So if you have one on the front corner, uh, say all four corners of your house, uh, you have some floodlights. If somebody trips one, have it just light up that corner. And uh, maybe a little porch light that's uh, rigged into the whole thing. It looks like you've turned your light on and you might be coming out. Uh, That's a great deterrent. Uh, Burglar alarms, I'm not so interested in where I'm at. I can... You know, tell you that it would probably take the police a damn long time to get there if they showed up at all, um, if somebody tripped a burglar alarm. So it's really more about alerting me that somebody's entered the property. That's that's what I'm most concerned about. In other situations, it may be totally different. You might have a place a lot closer to town, a lot less rural, a lot less out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, burglar alarms may make a lot of sense. Okay, another great question. Guy said, have you ever heard of like a group of survivalists ever actually pulling their resources together? Like let's say you get 20, 20 families and uh, each family wants three acres minimum. So those 20 families go out together, figure out what their budget is, and they say, okay, we're looking for any piece of land that makes a lot of sense for us at 60 acres or larger. And we're going to basically create a compound, create that compound type situation. Uh, or maybe they want five. So those 20 people look for 100 acres or more. And then setting that up with a perimeter and making it a community and running your community your way with your rules and putting everybody there together um, and building out that community and having like-minded individuals get together. If I ever heard of anything like that, what are my thoughts on it? Remember when I heard about it? It actually happened, uh, and I don't mean in like the weird nut job Davis Mountains original uh, Republic of Texas people that were way out there, uh, were the Freeman of Montana. I'm not talking about these like you know gunned up compound type situations that we get stereotyped with. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Bo Greitz, and uh, Bo Greitz was the most highly decorated U.S. Army soldier living ever in history. He's still around, and I'm not sure exactly what he's up to today. But he's a true American hero, Green Beret, served in Vietnam. And he's a guy that I guarantee you, if when we were getting ready to invade Iraq and Afghanistan, if he was waving the American flag, every politician with an agenda would have been had, you know, standing side by side with Bo Greitz. But Bo Greitz has started to question his own government. He's seen too many things. He was an operative 
during the Vietnam War. He's aware of what our government has done with the drug trade in Southeast Asia, and he's become kind of an outsider to the government in spite of his service, in spite of his attempts to help, in spite of the fact that he's gone and negotiated deals with heads of uh, countries that said, hey, look, we can stop this if you guys want to, and our government basically told him no. Well, he created back in the 90s a place up in Idaho called Almost Heaven. And... Uh, it was really a pretty interesting place. Now, the thing was, he didn't get everybody together first. I think he pretty much went in and funded it and then tried to sell off pieces of it to people they would let into the community. Uh, but it was a pretty cool little place. The only place I've ever actually seen footage of it was on a uh, a British series by a guy named Louis Thoreau. Uh, Louis's a jackass, really. He comes in and he plays the fool and he makes people look stupid long term. Uh, he came in looking for survivalists in the United States, and if I can find this on YouTube, I'll post it, and you can tell that he really wanted to go out and find nut jobs, and when he met Bo and the people who were living in almost heaven, you, you realize that he really quickly figured out that these were normal people, and he actually seemed to be quite good to them, and he kept looking for his nut jobs, which he eventually found in a neo-Nazi camp, and it was a really good little thing, it was a contrast of normal survivalist and crazy survivalist, and it was interesting. But my understanding is that almost heaven fell apart. Uh, apparently there were not enough people that participated to keep it going. I think that would always be a challenge. And the like-minded people thing. I think that the like-mindedness needs to be, and I know you're going to think it's my political agenda, but libertarianism. In other words, we have survivalists that are super religious. That's fine. As long as you don't expect all the other people on your compound to be super religious, or in your community to be super religious, you don't expect everybody to show up to your church, okay? Uh, or you know, we have some survivalists that are you know big time on you know um, you know I, I don't know. There's, there's just all types of things that we're you know really fundamentally um, attached to. For instance, you may decide that uh, like most survivalists, you you believe that the right to own uh, keeping bear arms is absolutely imperative not only that it exists but you do it well there are people that would classify themselves survival as survivalists that don't want to own a gun now as long as they don't want to take away yours i think you're happy but i think you're going to have and i can't think of all the individual things but if you put 20 survivalist minded families into one room together they're going to have an awful lot to argue about if they allow it to happen so it's going to have to be this kind of very loose rules community covenant type of situation Pretty similar to what we have up in Arkansas, except it wasn't formalized for survivalists. But, you know, we have very loose rules to what can't be done. Very, very loose. And anything inside of those are, is fine to do. And uh, I think it would take a lot of work and a lot of challenges. And um, I would have to be very comfortable. There, there's, there's tons of issues there. And I think maybe more the way to look at this is if you were to set up what would be called a constitution community. And that would be a community that governs itself under our Constitution, but complies outwardly with the laws of the land that are unconstitutional, that we're required to, so nobody comes and takes away what we have. And if you set something up around the Constitution, it might actually be a pretty good survivalist community long term. Uh, but you would have to have this uh, total um, live and let live philosophy going on. Uh, the next question was kind of an expansion on the 
on the uh, apartment dweller, city dweller, urban dweller thing from yesterday and was, hey, look, um, a lot of people in the cities just don't have any real room to produce food. What do you think about converting parks, uh, green belts, et cetera, into food production? And I think the question was really asked from, like, the guerrilla gardening technique. You know, you're going in and planting things unannounced and just doing it and making it happen. I think there's, you know, it's a noble pursuit. Um, I don't think you're going to get in too much trouble doing that in most situations as long as you're not planting invasive species or something like that. But I think it has a limited effect because if you fill up your, you know, your public park with a bunch of food producing plants, well, you can't then claim that food is yours. So you can't show up when there's a shortage and say, uh, these are my cherries, go away. So if you want to actually have something that's a reserve for you, one of the things that you could look at is finding a piece of land somewhere in that city that's reasonably accessible and maybe going into a community garden situation or see if one of them already exists. And the way they work is, they, they, they say there's an acre and people can go in and buy uh, or rent or lease or however you want to sponsor, support one twentieth of an acre. That might not sound like a lot, but it's quite a big piece of land if it's 100% for food. Uh, you could probably take it down to uh, 40, 40 blocks in an acre and everybody produces quite a bit. And if you've got a community around that and everybody's growing different stuff, the barter that would happen there would be amazing. And at least then you could you know, claim ownership of it. It still may be really difficult to do in a total shit at the fan where you have to worry about people uh, stealing and theft and vandalism and all that type of thing. But at least you have a legal case to stand on and the ability to enforce some level of security. So it may be overall a better option. Long term, long term, I'm in huge agreement with a lot of permaculturists that say, look at all the medians that we have along roadways. Look at all these, these spaces that we have that are planted with grass in our cities and cities all over the world. Places like India where there's miles and miles that could be converted into food forest and people starve every day. And we could basically line the highways that millions of people walk every day with so much food that nobody would ever starve. I think that's a great long-term goal. I think that has a lot more to do with actually affecting change at a public policy level and getting those types of initiatives sponsored in your city. Starting talking to town council people and saying, look, if you will sponsor us, if you will help us get permission, we'll go into some of these parks and we'll start planting edible plants. We'll provide the plants. We'll provide the labor. We'll make sure it's done right. We'll tell you what's going in and where it's going in. We'll organize days. We'll get the community involved, and this will be a great thing for our community. I think if we start that type of thing, it's going to be a lot more effective from, you know, planting the green belts in the parks than just running around stuffing onions in the ground. And I know that uh, that might not seem like survivalism. It's really not individual survivalism. That is more about long-term community survivalism and long-term sustainable living. I think that is something that has a lot of legs if we get enough people going out and deciding this is what I'm going to do. And I think that's what we all have to start doing in the self-sufficiency, sustainability community, expanding beyond just survivalism, is we all have to pick one or two things and say, this is what I'm going to do. Right, because I, I get invitations all the time. You get involved with this. You, you know, there's only so much that I. I'm one guy. There's only so much I can do. This show, by and large, and then the way I live my life and making it open and visible to others. This is what I do. 
So I, I have a limited amount of bandwidth, so to speak. So I'm saying that other people need to start looking at, well, maybe that's your thing. Maybe that's what you can do. Uh, maybe putting together a constitutional community is something somebody else can do. And we all need to be doing these little things. And if we all do this with an understanding of the unity around self-sufficiency, sustainability, and independence and liberty, then that change becomes like a massive tidal wave eventually. And the powers that be that don't like it won't have any ability to hold it back. So what I say is go use that system. Local government is a hell of a, and I don't mean state level, I'm talking town council level, city council level, is a hell of a lot easier to influence. The green movement is huge. Every politician under the sun, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter, wants to look like he's trying to save the freaking planet right now. I think it's a lot of nonsense, but if we're smart, we have the ability to harness it and use it. And I would suggest that people start looking into that and ask yourself a question, is that what you're supposed to do? If it's no, it's no. But if it's yes, take a shot at it. You might be surprised at what you're able to do. Another question about my bug out location, which I guess applies to anybody's bug out location, was, well, Jack, how do you plan long term when you're not just there on weekends? And especially if, like, services are cut off and whoever hauls your garbage away is there to deal with long-term waste disposal, specifically septic. And I, I think the question included garbage. And I'm going to include garbage because, honestly, the septic's too easy to answer. i got a septic tank. And we're not going to have... You know, like in the story Patriots, 12 people living in my house taxing my septic tank. My wife and I, and even if we brought in one or two more family members, the septic system there, that have any problems at all dealing with three or four people living in that house and the limited amount of septic that we actually have. And I also plan on taking eventually and plumbing all the water that's not sewage to be recycled and utilized. And uh, that's not for water conservation, folks. I have a 680-foot deep well down into an aquifer that's that's going to be there long after I'm dead, no matter what these fools do in other places, because there's no major real agriculture where I'm at either, because it's mountainous land. So, I'm not worried about running out of water. I'm not trying to save the manatees here, but I believe in efficiency, so I'm going to do that for efficiency's sake. It'll also tax the septic system less, because there'll be less flow through it. Um, so that's uh, that's part of the answer. Now the uh, the other side of this is what about the trash? Well, we have uh, a trash company, a private trash company, not a government trash company that we pay, I don't know, I think it's $120 a year to come take our garbage away. And uh, we pay for that even though we don't really use it very much because we're not there. Because, you know, when we do go there, we can throw things away. We're in a still state where we're building things up. We're buying stuff. So you're, you're talking, you know, packaging and plastics and stuff like that are there. But let's look at this another way. As somebody that's big into organic gardening and permaculture, if it's an organic piece of waste, if it's not meat... Right, and that's the only organic thing I can think of, or meat or dairy. Um, if it's any other food that's a waste, an apple core, a peel, uh, anything, it doesn't go in the garbage. It goes in the compost pile or it gets spread out in the permaculture system to break down naturally wherever it ends up. So that piece of our waste doesn't even exist. It doesn't even exist here in Texas. Okay, If the shit has hit the fan... The main things that contribute to the bulk of our of our garbage, which are packaging materials, are gone because you're not 
purchasing things in packaging at that point. So now would be if we get a point where services break down and where the guy doesn't want to show up for his money to, to take away our garbage, we probably can't buy anything to produce a lot of garbage with. On top of that, we keep a 55-gallon uh, steel drum there, and anything that's like a, a, a paper product that won't make good compost, we burn. So we actually produce very little garbage waste, and uh, that's actually quite useful. And, and even things like newspaper, we save that to use it for uh, weed blocker and, and that other type of thing. So we don't really have a lot of garbage waste to begin with, and if the shit hit the fan, it would immediately decline to almost nothing that would ever be wasted. So I'm not worried about the garbage. Septic system for uh, septic. And she said, well, what's the best uh, way to handle that? What's the best method of making sure you can get rid of your septic? And it is your own individual septic tank. And uh, can things go wrong with them? Yeah, but if you take good care of them and you do the right things and you don't overload them, they last for years and years longer than you do. And uh, that way you don't have to worry about sewage backing up because you're not tied in a city sewer. And if I had a place where I had the option to do one or the other, sewer or septic, I would go with septic. And it'll take a long time to pay itself back to you because sewer bills are pretty cheap. Uh, H about anywhere in the world. But if you use septic, you are actually uh, being pretty green. You are recycling. The stuff's just going deeper into the ground, and you don't see it or smell it, uh, but it's still going back to the earth, and it's doing it in a very efficient way. And if something goes wrong with city services and you have a well in septic, you are less affected. So that's, uh, that's, that's my answer on that one. Another question in my abbreviated version of it, just to make it simplistic, is a uh, guy's going to be traveling, going places where he can't take a gun with him. Uh, what are my suggestions for self-defense there? Best one I can give you is pepper spray. Um, you're not going to fight a battle with pepper spray, but you can sure extricate yourself from a battle really quickly with pepper spray. Uh, a little bit of martial arts training never hurt anybody. Having some hand-to-hand self-defense capabilities gives you a lot more confidence. Your best weapon at all times, though, whether you're armed or not, is your brain. Uh, what I would say is heighten your situational awareness. Make sure that you're paying attention to what's going on around you. And if you see a dangerous situation, don't try to be a badass. Remove yourself from the situation before it turns bad. Especially as a traveler. And some of the places this guy is going include places like Korea. And uh, it's one thing for, you know, in Mexico, it's one thing to be kind of a part of a problem in, in Los Angeles was another place the guy said he would go. Um, not that big a deal. I mean, as long as you're not going to jail for the rest of your life and, you know, you're part of some civil unrest, you get a fine, they let you out, you plead your case in court, nah, you know, um, whatever happens, it's not that bad. As long as you're not dead, severely injured, and not convicted of a felony, getting yourself in a situation in the United States, it's relatively painless for most situa- most situations. Don't you know? Make the extreme uh, the, the 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 norm. Getting yourself into what would be a minor situation in the United States, in Mexico, or Korea could turn into a life-altering event. So definitely heighten your situational awareness. And then I guess the other thing is put together kind of a, you know, a, a scaled-down survival kit that's got acceptable things to take with you. Look at your bug-out bag and say, okay, 
one in here is small enough, light enough to continue to carry without impeding my travel, and I won't have any problem taking where I'm going. Take everything else out. At least you have many of the things uh, that you would normally want to have available to you. And I won't say any more about it for now because there's another question that's highly similar from a different angle coming up. Got a question from a person who asked a bunch of questions, some really great ones. Here's one of those great questions. And uh, this person has asked some of the best questions I've ever gotten. Uh, this question says basically that her husband uh, is former military, believes in uh, tactical and military gear as being part of survival uh, planning. Do I agree or disagree? If so, what should you buy? Who should you buy it from? And should you outfit the whole family specifically? Should he outfit her? Should she ever own tactical and military gear? My answer to that question is your husband is right. And then, but, all things in balance. And the reality is you can't eat 308 ammunition unless you're a bad guy eating it in the teeth. Okay? You cannot feed yourself with a tactical vest. And in most situations that you would end up in where you need to be in a defensive position, you're better off to avoid the fight if you can rather than to be in the fight if you have to. Okay? So, it does not make sense, in my opinion, for most people, especially people that are in suburbia like these folks are, to think along the lines of, well, we'll have four sets of EDUs, we'll have a complete table of operations expenditures of equipment for soldier, and for you civilian types that means, okay, we're going to have two one-core canteens, one two-core canteen, load-bearing belt, load-bearing suspenders, we're going to have first aid kit, we're going to, I mean, the whole, out, you know, if you go in the Army, all that stuff that they give every individual soldier has a, a specific set of gear, and he has that set of gear, and he's responsible to have that set of gear well-maintained at all times, and if he's deployed, he's to be able to get his hands on that gear and go in seconds. That level for civilians doesn't usually make a lot of sense. In a situation where you had to go into a defensive position, you would be better off looking very, very inconspicuous, and if you're running around in fleck camo from the Germans or our new digi camo from the United States in suburbia during a shit at the fan, you stick out like sore thumb. And that says to everybody that looks at you, oh, look, survivalists. If I just shoot him from way the hell over here and he doesn't even know I'm here yet, we'll just go into his house and I bet he has all kinds of good stuff. So I think you have to minimize that. Now, that said, uh, I'm a huge fan. If you want to have some tactical gear, black. Black bent blends in better than you uh, might imagine, especially in the dark time of the night when you may actually have to use it most efficiently. During the day, I don't know what Camel's going to do for you in uh, Spooner Street, right? Okay? <laughs> so I think there's a balance there. Now, if you like that stuff, and you know, we have sponsors that sell that stuff, and if you want to buy it, I'd buy it from them. And I think there's a place for it. All I'm saying is put a balance on it. Do not be the guy. Don't be this guy. I've got an AR-15 for me. I've got an AR-15 for my wife. We've got 10,000 rounds each of 223 or 5.56 millimeter ammunition for you civilian types. That is a 223 Remington. We've got 100 magazines, high capacity. We've got load-bearing equipment. We've got Kevlar helmets and body armor. We're ready to deploy at a moment's notice. We have a plan, and we have a battle plan, and we're ready to defend or offend. It does not matter. 
manner. We are ready for whatever comes our way. Okay? How much food do you have? Well, I guess we got about two weeks worth of food. How much money do you have? Well, kind of out of money. I just spend it on the ammunition. Don't be that guy. Right? And that's the extreme. Don't gravitate toward that side of the spectrum. All things in balance. Armed, yes. Long term, every member of the household armed and trained to be effective with their weapons, yes. Reasonable amount of tactical gear if you have to move, get out, and defend yourself at the same time? Absolutely yes. Thinking you are going to reenact Red Dawn either never will happen, option A, option B, gets you killed. Those are your two options. You are not going to stand off a, a true military force with your IR free of pain and 10,000 rounds. And if you think you are and you start acting that way and you start setting up a persona that that's who you are, you will attract things you do not want and you're out on the fringe of the survivalist preparedness community anyway and most people don't want to talk to you. So I know that's not where these folks are coming from because the, the, the questions are too intelligent. But we have people that go there all the time. All I'm saying is don't be one of them. So your husband's right. And I suspect that you have some point where you're trying to rein him back in, and where you're trying to rein him back in, you're probably right too. Find the balance. When you find the balance in all things, you become most effective with the resources that are available to you. And would it be great if we all had enough resources to make a giant list of everything you could ever possibly need from the tactical to the practical and go out and buy it all in one fell swoop and still be debt free and still be able to live our lives the way we want and all everybody has 10 acres at least and it's permacultured and everything's perfect for everybody. It would be wonderful. It ain't going to happen. The world doesn't work that way. Everybody has limited resources, so find the balance and the most effective balance within the resources that you have. Okay, last question of the day, and this is the one that ties into the prior question a little bit, and I think this is another great question. Now, this question is, this guy says, every day I take public transportation for about 30 miles each direction to go to work and to get home. And I'm an apartment dweller, so I have that going on too. But my big fear is, what if something goes down while I'm away? I can't carry a true bug-out bag. I can't be armed, you know, with a firearm. What the heck do I do, given that I'm getting on a bus? And he didn't say whether it's a bus or a train, but it's got to be one or the other, right, every day. And spending that much time at the, uh, you know, I guess at the, uh, the mercy of the government, right, and the government's competence or lack thereof. How do I compensate for this? First thing I'd say is, okay, 30 miles, crappy transportation systems that are out there, maybe it's a train, maybe it's a bus, maybe it's a combination. I'm going to assume that you're traveling somewhere around an hour each direction. So two hours a day, you're in transit, okay? But what that means is eight hours a day, you're at your job, and then the balance of the time, the other, what is it, 12 hours, you're at home. 
I'm assuming since you take polar transportation, odds are you're probably working a normal type of shift, so to speak, five days on, two days off, something like that, like most Americans. Could be wrong. If I am, you're working seven days a week. God bless you. Keep working and make the most of what you're doing. But if it's five days a week, you also have two entire days a week that you're not traveling. My point is, mathematically speaking, the least likely place you are to be as a powder keg goes off, so to speak, is actually in transit. So, the first thing you do is you shore up what would I do if I was at home and what would I do if I was at work. And the work side balances it. And what I'm saying is, assuming you have some place where it's yours in private where you can do some level of storage at work, store some things at work. A few bottles of water. One or two days worth of food. It can look like snacks that you keep in a desk drawer. Possibly some other things that would be too cumbersome for you to daily carry in a bag. Okay, so whatever things you can't carry that you wish were with you, but it's just too much bulk to carry back and forth, kind of do the old, uh, there was a song back in the, in, the, in the 70s about a guy that built a car that worked at an auto plant, and he brought the whole car out in his lunchbox. So he was basically stealing from his job, but it was a funny song. It was like, you know, one day he brought out a piece of a carburetor, then he bought the other piece out, and then he bought out a valve. And basically over time he brought an entire car uh, out and built this muscle car from parts he brought out in his lunchbox. So go the other way around and bring one or two items that would be too bulky if you had everything that can be safely stored at work to work and create yourself some redundancy at work. And then, for your transit, build a scaled-down bug-out bag. Definitely, again, I'm a big believer in pepper spray. I don't know anywhere that in normal times you're not allowed to carry pepper spray. And the only place I've ever heard it taken away from people is in things like sporting events or shelters. And in most sporting events, I've not really heard of it being taken away. So I know somebody's going to write me and say, Jack, they did this here and it's a violation. I know, I know. But you've got to plan for what's most likely, not for what's most improbable. So pepper spray is a method of self-defense. Huge, huge fan of that. And again, for those of you that think you're going to spray somebody and then beat their ass, the purpose of pepper spray for a civilian is to, to, to take a defensive posture, interrupt an attacker, and get the hell out of there. So what, that's what that's for. Definitely carry a good map of your city. Well, a nice, fold-out, laminated maps of your city with all the streets and side streets. So if you ever have to bail off a bus or something happens like that, you can get yourself the hell home by the most expedient route possible. Because I promise you, whatever way you go every day on that bus or train is probably not the most expedient route possible if you're on, feet, on foot. A third thing I would suggest doing is, do you know anybody... That, it, that, that happens to live that's a trusted friend that's somewhere between you and where you work that you can have as a fallback location. You can have a frank conversation with and say, look, uh, I'm not talking about bumming from you. I'm talking about if something really goes wrong in our city and I'm stuck on foot, could I come to your house? It'll be short term. I just need help. I need a stopping point to help me get back to where I keep all my stuff in my home and things like that. You don't even really have to have a survivalist conversation with that person. So see if you can find yourself a midpoint somewhere in between with a trusted friend that you can rely on if you end up stranded. And that's a good idea even just because the bus broke down today. Right?
So it doesn't have to be issued at the fan. Remember, threat probability. Always plan, starting with the most probable things first. The city all of a sudden runs out of money and shuts down your method of transportation. You have to be at work when they do it because you work odd hours. They say, well, we're shutting it down in the morning, and you know that way everybody's home. Well, no, everybody's not home. So, you know, make, make a redundancy for yourself there. And then, this will sound a little corny, but one of the things you may want to look at is if you do know somebody that has a, a place with some significant um, storage capabilities that you really wouldn't hamper, but maybe even throw them a couple bucks a, a month or something to do this, is you might want to say, look, if I ever had to do this, I don't want to eat your food. I might be there for a day or two at most. All I want to do is get home. But could I put a few things in your your place so that if I had to show up, I'm pulling my own weight. And maybe it's just a small box with some food, maybe some cash, some things like that. You may even want to think about throwing a bicycle at that place if a person would allow. Just a cheap, um, you know, there's you can buy a decent bicycle now for 50 bucks. You can go buy a used one for probably less than that. It doesn't have to be a great cycling machine because all it would be is, you know, 15 miles by bicycle, ain't that bad guys, it sucks, but it ain't that bad, you can do it, and that at least can get you back to your base of operations where you are as prepared as you possibly can be as I've said, I think that long term apartment living is kind of tough to be totally self sufficient, so you have to put as much redundancy in place as you can while you're living that way, Um, I think that you know, I understand why people do it, I've lived in apartments myself I guess maybe I've not thought about it as deeply as I should have because back when I was living in an apartment was during my I'm about to climb the corporate ladder phase. And I wasn't really thinking this way back then. I had kind of forgotten my roots a little bit and drifted away from it for a while. So I'll try to put some more thought into this. But those are some of my initial thoughts on what you can do as an apartment dweller and specifically as somebody dependent on public transportation. I have nothing against public transportation for the people it works for. My, my problem is most cities, especially like Dallas, we build trains and they don't go from where people want to get to to where people go and where people live. We, we're, we're retarded. We, you know, the first thing we should have done in, in Dallas was build a train. This would have been genius from the airport to Dallas and then from Dallas to Fort Worth and then maybe from Fort Worth back to the airport and build that triangle and then run trains off of that and actually use our brains. We didn't do that here. So if you live in a place where public transportation is reliable and goes between where you are and where you want to go, it can probably save you a lot of money, and it's probably a lot less aggravating than me sitting in traffic every day uh, if I wasn't doing this show anyway in the mornings. So it's a valid method of transportation. Uh, it, ecologically, it does make sense. I mean, you, you can't say that, it, that buses are bad for the environment when you have, you know, 80 people on a bus versus 80 people in 80 cars uh, or bad for, for fuel consumption or uh, energy dependence or anything else like that. So it's a, good, it's a good thing for us. But just understand that it does put you at an additional point of risk. But understand also that mathematically, Once you're on there, odds are that no matter what goes wrong, you'll probably be able to get at least closer to home than you are when the things start to go wrong, or at least closer to work. And then on top of that, just by the odds, you're more likely to be at home or at work when it goes wrong. So try to take the redundancy and start by placing some of the things that you would think you need to get home to get to and put them at work. And I know things like, especially if you work for a city government or something, you're not going to be able to put a firearm in your workplace, but that's okay. 
That's only one piece of things. And then above all else and all these questions, remember that the ultimate weapon that you have is your mind and your awareness. Stay aware, stay adaptable, be prepared to improvise, adapt, and overcome. And that will take you a long way toward living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.